All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today is a returning guest. I mean, it's been since forever, but I finally have them back on the show. And that's my fault, not theirs. <laughs> well, with me today is uh, my good friend, Dr. Jace Broadhurst. Jace, what's going on, man? Hey, Josh. Glad to be back. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks for uh for hanging out. I know I, I constantly pitch ideas at you and they rarely ever uh, come to fruition. And that's a hundred percent on me, not you at all. Just so everybody is clear in this situation. <laughs> well, yeah, you pitch ideas and then we end up talking about those ideas for several hours. And then we're like, you know, we probably should have recorded that. And we didn't. So we actually do have lots of podcast episodes, you and me. <laughs> right. That's true. They're just, but they're just yeah. not, no one else gets to listen to them. Right. I think, I guess I'll have to like hit up my uh, phone company. Cause I feel like they probably have all that kind of stuff on, on record and be like, Hey guys, can I get the recording of any phone conversation I've had with Jace Broadhurst in the past year? <laughs> right. You, you'd be set for the next year's worth of podcasts. Be yeah. It'd be, it would be perfect. It would be perfect. And then uh, it'd, be, it'd make a good show too. I would listen to it at least, you know, you already did though. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I got to re-listen. That's that's a secret. I don't know. Maybe this is egotistical, but I whenever I release an episode for the podcast, I, I re-listen to that episode at least once. Um, I don't know if that's because I like to hear myself talk or what, but I find it a helpful practice. It makes me a better podcaster, at least. I, I hope so. I don't know. Maybe it yeah, doesn't. No, I, yeah, I don't think it makes you egotistical. I think it makes you I, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I listen to my sermons over again, all I do is, ooh, that was really I got to I got to do that better wow, did I say the word like again? Oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> like I got to do better. So it's just basically a big critique. And so with a podcast, I'm sure you're listening to the other person and their brilliance and you know, you're humble about your own, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, d I definitely listen to them. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, Josh, why did you say that that way? Like, that's dumb. <laughs> or, like, or like, oh man, I remember when I said that during the episode, it felt so profound, but now that I'm hearing it again, it's just whack <laughs> or something. Yeah. I'm sure you, lots of times you're like, I could go back and edit this a little bit. I'm sure they'll say lots of things today. I'm like, wow, did I really say those things? That's 
I was just filling space and I'm used to preaching when you fill space, people are asleep anyway. So <laughs> you know, people are probably listening to this with seriousness. I gotta, I gotta be on point. Yeah. On point or else we're shutting it down the whole podcast. Right. Yeah. You, I know all this money that you're making off this. Yeah. I'm, I realize this is your livelihood. I'm going <laughs> to right. do as good as I can to make this good. <laughs> Sweet. Well, uh, James, I know you and I are, are friends, so uh, I already know this question about you, but just for people who aren't quite familiar with you, uh, can you just give our listeners a little bit of background about uh, yourself, who you are, uh, and what, what kind of things you find yourself doing? Yeah, I'm a past middle-aged man who uh, really loves the church and uh did a whole bunch of degrees in it because it was super interesting to me. So I'm a biblical theologian. I have a PhD from Westminster in uh, Hebrew Bible and hermeneutics. And what do I like doing? I got three boys that I like seeing, but they're in different parts of the world right now. So I can't see them very often, but I love hanging out with them. And I'm a pastor full-time, just taking care of a small congregation that needs me around, or at least they pretend they need me around. And they give me money to be around. So I, I've learned to love them a lot. So that's what I do. Sweet. Good deal. Well, thanks. Um, so basically today I wanted to talk to you and this actually, this conversation started out um, a few weeks back. So listeners, Jason, and I um, kind of led like a Bible study, small group kind of thing together uh, for the church that I used to work for. We, we took a group of people through Brad Jersak's latest book, uh, More Christ-like Word. And there was one person in the group in particular who was particularly interested. There you go. Two particulars in one sentence. That's a well said. Well, edited. Well, yeah. <laughs> Cut it. Uh, but uh, who she was particularly interested in spiritual warfare and had some very specific views on it. And the, the idea of Satan came up a lot. And I had like texted you about it because I didn't really know what to make of the kind of things she was saying. Um, and so I, that we had like a very brief, more, mostly joking conversation uh, about Satan then, but I wanted to have a more serious conversation. Um, and I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to. So here we are, we're going to talk about Satan. How does that sound? <laughs> I am the expert in Satan. So let's, let's do this. Like I, I know more about Satan than, yeah, no, I'm, I, I can probably help at least what the Bible has to say about it, but I don't know him very well. So, which is good, I think. <laughs> right on. So you're not like, you know, part of me wanted to have some kind of like super like heavy, like black death metal, like music intro to the podcast episode, you know, uh, and like fire or something like, you know, to really sell the point. But I think that's a great idea. Yeah. You should definitely go back and put that intro in. <laughs> I, have to, I have to find some like unlicensed music that isn't copyrighted <laughs> or if they're if they're screaming though and people can't quite understand it like does copyright apply because like couldn't really understand it anyway but i guess it's still intellectual property Pro- probably not an expert on uh on copyright law with music sorry cool all right well we'll we'll uh jump in then about the the whole satan bit and I think what would be helpful um, is if we could try to kind of walk through maybe the progression of the idea of Satan within the pages of specifically the Bible, 
uh, since that's uh, what you know well is the Bible, and I will throw my theological musings in at appropriate times. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I think that's a great way to do it because uh, even what you use, like the progression of scripture, we don't even think about that very often. We just want to know who is Satan? You know, how is he the enemy of God? What is his role in our life? Like we ask these theology questions and we think that scripture is somehow uniform in the way that it speaks of Satan. And then we could pick a passage here and passage there and they'll all kind of teach us the systematic theology understanding of Satan. So the way you said it, I think is actually a really good first point. If I were, if I were teaching a class on Satan to say, there's a progress, there's a progression in our revelation in how they understood Satan at one point in time over another point in time, over a period of a thousand years. And you would imagine that might happen. So I like your plan. And I just spoke and said all that stuff just to support your, uh, what you're, what you're thinking is there, but to make a, I think a, a relevant point about how the Bible should be understood. Yeah, no, for sure. Most, most definitely. And I mean, that was, uh, understanding that, you know, idea of progression was really helpful for myself, especially too, once I, um, kind of started to dive into it and realized that a lot of like the, um, ideas of like angels and demons really started to, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm um, really started to take hold more so within like second temple Judaism, you know, around the time of Jesus. And that's when some of these ideas really started kind of having some more oomph to them, if you will. Um, but then that has yeah. some repercussions, right? So like maybe a good place to start the first place the Bible is, is Genesis and Growing up, I was always taught that the snake in the Adam and Eve story was Satan, is the devil. Um, but now, within my understanding, the concept of uh, Satan didn't exist at the time when that narrative was being told. And to read the snake as Satan is maybe reading something into the text that's not quite there. Um, or if you were to talk to some like Jewish rabbi friends and you called the snake Satan, they'd be like, uh, what are you talking about? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. So if, if we start with Genesis, is that, are we supposed to see Satan in that snake? Okay. So yeah, we're going to start with the hardest thing and then work our way forward to the easier parts. Sure. Whatever works. Um, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so Genesis three is where this serpent and the hash shows up, right? So he is, he's a serpent. He's a snake. He's nothing. He's nothing special in the story, at least not obviously except for he's talking to this couple. So that's a little weird. Um, and he's trying to get them to not follow God. And that's a little bit weird. So snakes probably shouldn't do that, uh, especially if they're created by God, but he's the, he's the most wise of, or the most crafty of the animals that are on there. So yeah, that understanding of him as Satan isn't fully developed until the New Testament. Peter actually calls that serpent the devil. So he has that. So maybe we should say from the get-go here, in our mind, what we call Satan as some sort of a, you know, the arch enemy of God has never been the full concept of what it what it is. Even in the New Testament, that's not really the way it works. So we have to we have to get into a lot of different ideas about um, this Satan character, the devil character, the serpent character, a divine council of beings, the seraphim, 
who are serpent-like angelic creatures. Um, there's there's so many different things, but in Genesis, where Genesis lets sits on all on its own, this is going to be. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to just like go for a couple minutes if that's all right. Go for uh, it. Yeah, go for it. I, I think we we start off with this misunderstanding of Genesis to begin with, and that's what gets us in some sort of trouble, like um, like Satan is trying to. You know, we we start with the concept of Satan trying to deceive them. He's the deceiver. But really, the story should be seen a little bit differently. I mean, these are symbolic characters, which doesn't mean that they're not real characters. That's that's fine. They can be historical characters. I don't I don't know. I'm not going to try and figure that out. That's for you and your theology and your listeners to figure out. But I think everyone realizes if they are that they're also more right. They're symbolic. So Adam means mankind, Eve means mother of the living. There are a couple of magic trees. There's a talking serpent. It is at least more than historical. So this snake represents something. Whether he's something real like Satan or not, that's a different question, but start off with what it represents. And I think, I think Adam and Eve represent priests, people who are vice regents, priests and kings under God and they're put in the place where God dwells. So they have this relationship. And Eden is a temple. And we can't, I don't think, unless we want this to be a three episode uh, thing here, we can't go into all the details what shows that Eden is a temple, but Ezekiel shows that even in Genesis, it's somewhat evident. It's not super clear, but Ezekiel makes it very clear in other passages that this is the sanctuary of God, which is just another word for the temple of God right? It's the place where God dwells with man. So when you get to Leviticus or into the Levitical priesthood in general, like Adam is a priest, he, you know, he comes in the place of gold and there's all the stones are there from the ephod and all the priesthood language is there about Eden. Then what you have is a false prophet that comes into the temple that is trying to get Adam and Eve to go their own direction, to choose the path of wisdom in their own way instead of God's way, which I think is the story of the Bible throughout. Okay. I realize we haven't really gotten into Satan, but you got to have this big picture stuff in your mind from the very beginning. So the snake, the Nahash is really just, I think, a false prophet getting Adam and Eve to go a direction that they shouldn't be going. Now, because he's a false prophet, because he's speaking against God, God is said to do one thing and he's saying to do something else. We're going to start on this trajectory forward of these creatures or these things, these people, these angelic beings, whatever, that are going to um, fight against God, disagree with God, be false prophets of some kind, say the wrong thing about. And so you're going to get into the New Testament and you're going to have Satan, right, deceiving, or sorry, um, uh, tempting Jesus. And he's going to try and say, here's what you need to think. And Jesus is going to say, no, here's what God says. Again, that false prophet understanding. So when you get to the New Testament, they're going to jump back into the Old Testament and say, this character all along was a Satan. Okay, so a Satan. Which I think is how we probably need to understand this being, not as an arch enemy of God, but as a Satan. Maybe I'll be quiet for just a second, but I could keep going, but this is also your podcast, so I should shut up. <laughs> no, that's good. So I, I think that's a helpful distinction. So instead of 
<clears throat> instead of thinking of like at least so I'm going to try not to do theology. I'm going to try to <laughs> understand how the Bible is is presenting this based off what you said. So within the pages of scripture, do we see this concept of um, a Satan being applied to people or sometimes anthropomorphized animals, <laughs> snakes, uh, playing the role of a Satan and a, an, an accuser or a false prophet, to use your words. Um, and like that, that's kind of the concept that comes up throughout the pages of scripture overall, like Old Testament and New Testament as well. Um, it's just this idea of like, Satan is, is more of a, like a title rather than like a proper name. Yes. That kind so of the distinction. That's the great place to go into this. I mean, you're, you're using what I've said and you're already taking us forward. So that's awesome. So, yeah. And I, and I think it's very important to realize that the vast majority of times that you see the word Satan in the old Testament, in your English translations, it's going to be capitalized. Like it's an, like it's a proper name. But the reality is, I think, if I remember correctly, all but two passages in the Old Testament have the definitive article in front of it, definite article. Let's try it like that, right? So it's the Satan, okay? So it's it's a title, and you already said it's the title of accuser or adversary. So I've taken that false prophet idea from Genesis chapter 3, and you've taken the accuser, because remember, Satan's not even mentioned there, so there's no... There's no the Satan, ha Satan, even mentioned. It's just a snake in a garden. That's all that is. So we have to start theologizing to make that Satan. However, there is the idea there. There might be deep in there the idea that this being that shows up in Genesis is one of the, uh, the seraphim or the flying serpent gods. And people are like, people are listening to this saying, flying serpent gods, what, uh, please, you guys are just, you guys are totally messing with me. Okay, we're not. So these flying fiery serpents, seraphim, uh, gosh, where do we start? Okay, so we need, <laughs> we need to go back even further, maybe, to give more information about what's called a divine council. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because that's really developed in like the book of Job, right? Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. Book, okay, so yeah. So let's just move to the book of Job just to make it, just to think about that for a second. Okay. Because we always think here's Satan, right? Satan comes, he's been hanging out on earth. He comes up to God and he speaks to him. He's the arch enemy of God. He's got his horns and his pitchfork or whatever you picture, or if he's an angel of light, whatever you want to say, he's this character. But he comes into the throne room of God and has this conversation with him. Now, this idea of going in and having a conversation with God in a throne room is what we call the divine council motif. Okay, so it may start as early as Genesis chapter 1, right? Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in our image. And I know we've all been taught that that's the Trinity, but there's no Trinitarian understanding. It's not, it's not very clear in the Old Testament. But the divine council motif is very clear. So God speaks with this other group of gods. And I know your people are freaking out now again, right? So there's a lot of gods. Yes. Is it monotheistic? Is the Bible monotheistic? It's a form of monotheism that we might better call monolatry or henotheism. 
That is the belief that other gods are worshiped out there, but we're only worshiping one because he's above all the other ones. So that's Yahweh. So he's a God among the Elohim. And you can find that all throughout the Psalms, all over in the Bible, that there are other gods. At least that's the way the literature brings it up. And God, Yahweh, is over them. But that he chooses to share or to partner with them in what he's going to accomplish. So he has, he has them give advice and things. In the story in Kings with Micaiah, um, a lying spirit goes down and gets goes into the prophet's mouths. You'll have to go look that one up sometime. Uh, but this is a this is a conversation God's having with all the people with all of His gods, and that's the decision that they come to. Isaiah is another great passage where Isaiah is brought up into the council room of God, and he sees right these angelic creatures. They put coal on his mouth. He becomes one of the divine council in that, and then is sent to do his work. So divine counsel is just a motif that shows up in the Old Testament and in all kinds of other ancient Near Eastern things. It's the idea of a cosmic mountain. Uh, you could read, uh, I think, Clifford on this cosmic mountain idea from Harvard. He's got this, uh, this, um, this place where God dwells and where mankind can dwell. So the angels and God or these, sorry, let's say the sons of God, the Elohim all dwell up top and then mankind all dwells on the bottom. And then there's an overlap where they seem to intermingle sometimes. So maybe Genesis 3 is a portrayal of that intermingling of one of these divine beings, these divine council people, not people, but gods, who are these fiery serpent things that show up in scripture. And maybe that's what's being represented there. So I know that's, I, I believe that's Michael Heiser's view of the way it's supposed to work there. And uh, I know you're a fan of the Bible Project. They do a little bit of work on that as well. Um, I'm, I'm not persuaded. I, I think it's a symbol for the false prophet, but it's still going to work. It's still going to progress forward. And again, I'm talking so much. I'm tired of hearing my voice. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, I mean, you're presenting information to me that, you know, is new to me. And this is why I wanted to ask you about it, because I really... I don't, I haven't done much study here, so I don't know. Um, but I mean, I think I find the divine council rather fascinating. Uh, it just because too, I mean, I've, I've heard people talk about that before. And then for me, where I struggle with this notion of a divine council is like, okay, so the Bible is talking about this divine council and is portraying, you know, the ability of like one of, you know, these people to like go into a divine throne room with God and, and all this kind of stuff. And that to me seems uh, like, I don't know, are, are the authors of scripture trying to communicate like there's a literal throne room and there's actually these, these gods all sitting around talking with one another. And then, you know, is that, is that the point? Are they trying to do something else? Like that's, because and I think we've talked about this before you brought up Michael Heiser um Heiser's brilliant like I've I've found his podcast uh was it the Naked Bible podcast or whatever to be very helpful very insightful um but where I tend to get uncomfortable with Heiser and then I disagree but again I'm disagreeing because it makes me uncomfortable that doesn't mean it's not true <laughs> right but I'm disagreeing he seems to like take this the angels and demons stuff and like makes it all or nothing like this, you know, this is a hundred percent literal, like 
that because then you talked about the intermingling which like you have the nephilim right which is like when these gods came down and started sleeping with you know attractive human women and then like they kind of really jack things up and like that's why god floods the earth with the whole jonah story is because like the nephilim really screwed everything up so like god's angry at them it, it like just it gets so messy so fast yeah like, it does before we dive into all of that, is the point to take it literally like that, or are the authors trying to do something else? Well, I mean, yeah. I, literature and reality are two different things. Literature is trying to get you to picture something in your mind, whether whether the literature has it all correct in the sense that like this is the I'm, I'm trying to give you a systematic theology understanding of angels, demons, Nephilim, sons of God, divine counsel, like, like you should have this whole paragraph under each one of them. I, I don't think so. I, I think they live in this world of supernatural beings. It's just, that's the world they live in. And so it's natural for them to talk about such a thing. I think the main thing that probably should be getting across for us is something like there is a world outside of ourselves and and god wants like he's chosen to partner with us in this realm and them in that realm and there's there's something really beautiful about this especially since at one point some some point there's come the realms are supposed to come back together so yeah, it's messy. You went into Genesis six, one through four with the sons of God sleeping with the daughters of man or taking them, it says, and the creation of Nephilim and the Gibberim and the sons of Anakim and all, all of that stuff. Yeah, I, I don't, some, somehow I feel like we are saying so much information here that people aren't gonna be able to follow what we're actually doing. Uh, I'm not sure if you feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, that's, that's probably fair. Trends. maybe i'll jump back to job yeah let's let's jump back into job and the the image of satan there because that so job is a place that gets a lot of criticism right because you here you have what it seems like god playing games with people's lives to make a point to the satan dude like that i mean that's a, a caricature but like that's people bring that critique so like yeah the, who is satan in this like what what is going on yeah. So, I mean, we could give an apologetic for the book of Job in just like 30 seconds, but just to say the book of Job is a theodicy, right? It's a, um, it's a trying to explain why these bad things happen to good people. It's a defense of God in, in this situation. So you're not supposed to take this book literally. It, it just screams out not to take it literally. There's only three narrative chapters in the book um, out of you know, out of, out of dozens of chapters in there. So most of it's poetry, most of it's monologue. And, you know, at the beginning, the Satan takes a lot of things away from them. In the end, God restores him exactly double the amount, I believe. So it's screaming out to you to see this as a, as a story that's got a purpose, a, you know, a parable of some kind. So I don't think we're supposed to take theology about Satan here. But again, this is the Satan, and it shows up more here than any other passage in the Bible. It, the Satan shows up. He talks to God. He's part of that divine council. He's an accuser or an adversary. Um, you might even say, the best way to say it is he's a functionary of God. 
So God has created this being to have this role. It's not a bad role. Satan's not a bad guy. Now, he sometimes does things that we might consider to be bad, but I, I think in the bigger picture of things, they're not actually bad. They're, uh, or at least not in the Old Testament's understanding of them. So, so I, I don't think this is like an arch enemy of God. God and, and Satan are battling things out. I think this is just a cool parable to show different reasons for why God might make bad things happen or might allow, it's probably a better way to say it, might allow, or maybe even, well, we don't want to get into the theology of it, but yeah, I know what you might say there is he does not, he neither allows nor he makes, it just happens and he's, he can't do much about it because that's who God is. But I would probably <laughs> differ with you on that, but that's not the point of our talk right now. Let's, let's stay on topic here. So yeah, this is one of those places where the Satan shows up. There's several places. I mean, if we were to make the argument that Hasatan, the Satan, is the main point here, um, he shows up in Chronicles. If you remember the story of um, David has, is making a census of his men. So he shows up in both Chronicles and in Samuel. And in Chronicles, it says an adversary or the Satan opposed Israel and incited David to make a census. But then when we get to the Samuel passage, it tells you exactly the same story, but instead of saying an adversary or the Satan, it says the angel of the Lord does this. So uh, so he's the, or is it an angel of the Lord? Or is it, no, I think it's just Yahweh himself. I don't even think it speaks of an angel of the Lord. Although the angel of the Lord, this is really important too. I get so excited about all this stuff, sorry. Um, okay, well, the first thing is Chronicles and Samuel are different, right? So one says the Satan and one says Yahweh has incited him to wrath. That's, or sorry, has incited David to build this, to, to make this census. Numbers 22, Numbers 22, I think. There's people out there fact-checking me right now. It's Numbers 20 or 22, somewhere in there, um, is the other place that Satan shows up without a definite article. So just Satan instead of Hasatan. And there it's the angel of Yahweh is standing in the way of Balaam, Balaam's donkey. You remember that, right? As an adversary. And remember, that's when the donkey starts talking and stuff like that. So he's standing in the way as a Satan, as an adversary to him. So the, Yah so the angel of Yahweh, who's often intermingled with Yahweh. You remember an angel of Yahweh is at the, is at the burning bush, but Yahweh himself speaks. The angel of Yahweh is constantly showing up and he looks basically like Yahweh. It's like they're one in the same somehow. Maybe it's a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus. I, I don't know. I don't want to get into all of that, but it's a representative for God anyway. But if angel of Yahweh is part of that, then when we get to this adversary opposing Israel, inciting David to count the to count the uh, the warriors that he have, this is again a functionary, an angel of Yahweh, or an adversary, or um, an angel of death. These are all functionaries of God. They work for Him. They do His job for Him. So it makes sense the contradiction between Chronicles and Samuel, whether God incites it or an angel of God incites it, an adversary of God. It's the same thing. 
So it's not the arch enemy of God again. So we don't have any arch enemies of God. There's just not that many passages that Satan even shows up. Like I think he shows up in Zechariah um, as, uh, as, and he gets rebuked by the Lord, by the angel of the Lord, if I recall, right? Um, yeah, the angel, angel of the Lord rebukes Satan and Yahweh rebukes Satan. Again, intermingling the two in some sense there. So those are, I mean, there's not, I don't think there are any other major passages that deal with Satan, except for the two most famous ones where he's not mentioned by name. So, I mean, you got the Genesis 3 one, right? Which we've already talked about. That's really famous about Satan. So we hear, but then there's two passages in the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel that both mention Satan as well. I don't know if we want to talk about those since they don't actually mention his name, but you know, that's the Lucifer, the morning star um, falling from heaven. We have this whole, we have this whole mythology in our mind about Satan falling from heaven. Like he has pride and he wants to make himself like God. And so he, you know, seeks to lift himself up and God's like, that's enough of that. You're not going to be pride. And he kicks him out and he takes a third of the, like, where are these stories in the Bible? They're just great stories, but they don't actually exist in the Bible. Those passages that we talk about are talking about different things. It doesn't mean there's not a connection, but it's not quite as clear and obvious as we might want. So I don't know if you, I don't know how much depth you want to go in here. Do we want to talk about Isaiah and Ezekiel? Because we got yeah. we got to read those books if we're going to do that. I mean, the chapters. Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be helpful because people were asking. Like, I put up a little poll on Instagram to ask you know, what are some questions? And one of the people did ask like, what, how did, how did that whole progression work? Like, hold on, I'm, I'm pulling up their question now. So I do it justice, but they basically said, how did scholars reach the conclusion about the morning star equals Lucifer equals the serpent in the garden, which equals Satan. So like people are drawing all these connections and like, that's, I mean, I, I remember hearing that like Lucifer and I mean, there's TV shows, right. Called a TV show called Lucifer. And he's the devil, yeah. <laughs> like, like, or he's the Satan or, or something like that. Yep. So people, people think that, or like, I, I remember being taught that like Satan was like Lucifer's originally some like good angel that was like the master of, of worship, like worship, like his whole bit was like, he worshiped God and he did it so well. Then he became prideful. And then, like you said, you know, try to overthrow God or something, he got kicked out, you know, one third of the angels got kicked out and that's now how we have demons. But it's like, is it, is it there? Is that what Ezekiel and, and Isaiah are doing? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, kind of. So <laughs> I feel like th there's, there's like two stories going on at the same time. So what Ezekiel and Isaiah are doing are talking about specific kings. So we can look at the passage for a minute, but I'll just kind of set it up. They're talking about specific kings, and we just ignore that, that it starts off saying something like, take up this lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him this. And then they go through this line. Like, it's about the king of Tyre. So the story is going to very specifically deal with him, but it's using mythological um, it's having a conversation that exists in myth. It's, it's comparing the king of Tyre to something that has happened or has happened at least in their, in their minds and their story world and their mythology. 
whether that's something that really happened, which is always going to be your question, or if it's something that exists only in myth and uh, and just this literary feature of it, that's that's a different question. And whether it is talking about Satan specifically or uh, this morning star like Hadad, which is some we know as Baal in in the Old Testament sometimes, there's a story like that about him. So the point of it is though, there's some story in their community mindset that is telling them that there was once someone who was arrogant and got kicked out. So that's not what Isaiah and Ezekiel are about, but it's bouncing off of those ideas. Or at least I think the Isaiah one is. The Ezekiel one, I'm not convinced. So I guess we got we to gotta do it, right? Do we get to do it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So Ezekiel, it, it says this, you're a model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. I'm in chapter 28, verse 12, for all your brilliant scholars who are looking this up to fact check me right now. Um, you're the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, well, there we go, right? Satan fits perfectly. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, well, we know who was in Eden. Like, it's really obvious. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a, a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Remember, we talked about Eden being holy mountain before, cosmic mountain. Here it is. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Okay, so yeah, I, I mean, this fits so well. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. Um, I expelled you. I'm skipping a little bit. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. You corrupted and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Um, everyone's appalled at you, reduced to ashes, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so there are two different main, well, maybe three different ideas here. The first one is that this is the king of Tyre, which is legit, and it is. It's absolutely talking about this. The king of Tyre has so lifted himself up that he needs to be cast down. Same thing happens with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Lifts himself up, so he becomes a creature, subhuman. When you try to make yourself out to be like the gods, divine, then you become subhuman. That's what ends up happening. So that's what's definitely happening in Ezekiel. But are they bouncing off of a story about Satan or the snake or this divine council gone awry? Or is this a story which isn't isn't readily apparent here because our, our brain is stuck in the Satan idea. Is this a picture of Adam? Which, again, I know you mentioned, or maybe we both mentioned Michael Heiser. He's pretty convinced that this is not Adam. I think he's not, I don't think he's right. I think this is Adam. And I think his, his arguments for why it's not aren't that great. Um, but as you look through this, wisdom and perfect and beauty, yeah, that's the idea right? He's created good. In Eden, in the garden of God, precious stones. Yeah, he's a priest of God. He's, he's adorned with the precious stones. Um, he's anointed as a, he, as a guardian. Yeah, that's his job, to guard the garden, to guard the trees. That's what he's supposed to do. 
Um, he's on the holy mountain of God, all these things. And yet, you know, he sins. He's expelled from the garden and cast down to the Eretz, to the earth, or cast out of this cosmic um, sanctuary into the rest of the world, where the rest of the world is now living. And so he's, he's kicked out because of his splendor, because he thought he was great, because he thought he would choose wisdom on his own. It's a poetic way of saying all these things. And certainly Mike and I, or whoever else that disagrees with me could walk through here and see some little things that like, yeah, that kind of goes your way, Jace. Well, yeah, this kind of goes your way. Really doesn't end up being super important to me because I don't think we're supposed to take this as a theological treatise on what happened to some mythical, and I use the word mythical, not, not pretend, but um, something bigger than itself story. So I think we need to keep this story um, big picture and not deal with all the little things and try and figure that stuff out. So I don't think Ezekiel's talking about Satan, I, but Isaiah, Isaiah is a little bit, a little different. So it's Isaiah 14. Uh, let's see. Isaiah comes before Ezekiel, right? I know you have a limit on this podcast. I need to, uh, I need to probably talk fast, huh? No, you're good. I don't, I don't have limits. I do what I want since it's my podcast. Dang it. All right. I like that. Okay. <laughs> well, your, your, uh, your listeners have a limit to what they can handle. That's for sure. That's true, but then they can just like pause, you know, resonate, think point. about, is, and then keep going. That is the beauty of all this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I am in uh, Isaiah 14, and it says in verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, or if you're in the King James, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, right? That's the cosmic mountain again. He wants to be at the top of it on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And it continues to talk about that. Now, so this is a story about, again, some something, Morning Star, whoever it is, having fallen from his place of power from heaven, it says, and laid low, being cast down to the earth, again, to the Eretz, and all because he wanted to ascend to the top. So I do think there is in their cultural memory or in the, you know, in the stories that have come, there's this ancient story about the gods uh, being in rebellion. And I think we see that in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I think that is that story of these sons of God that have fallen and have left their proper domain to come down and do things. They've left. So that is that they've, they've rebelled against God in some way. Okay. And so they're rebelling because they think we, I need to have the authority in all of this. And so God eventually says that's enough. And he removes them from their place of power. Or maybe it's better to say he removes them from their pleasurable place of power. Ooh, that's alliterative. Yeah. So because... Kind of like a, a good Baptist, Jace. Well done. That's right. I, I'm, I'm a good Baptist pastor. Or this 
Um, because what happens, we find out in uh, Deuteronomy, is that God assigns over the nations these, um, these different sons of God. So we have 70 nations. If you're reading through Genesis, you're going to see that, and you're going to have 70 sons of God that are put over these different nations. So now what we've done is we've commingled the, the human world with the world of the gods, and the gods now have influence on these different nations, which is the reason for the conquest. You got to go defeat all the gods. It's the reason for the Egyptian uh, destruction. You've got to go defeat all these gods. Because that's what God is now doing. All these gods who have fallen, these sons of God, these Elohim, have become gods in their own right. Like they're the stars of the heavens. That people, of, people are worshiping them and they have sway over people. This is the way they would understand it. So people's darkness is um, comes from these creatures, or at least is egg, egged on. These two darkness worlds mingle together. So I think I think that's what's happening with this Satan idea in the Old Testament, that he is a force uh, that that. Well, maybe I should say there's there's two different ideas, right? There's, there's the idea of a, a dark force that has left its proper abode. And then there's this functionary idea that they're just functionaries of God and they do, do his bidding. And there's a continuum as to, you know, the ones that are in God's favor and the ones who are not in God's favor. And the ones that are not in God's favor, there'll be a progression of revelation that'll continue and eventually we'll have the understanding of demons coming from it and when i say eventually i think if i remember right i think moses even uses the word demon at some point or something like that but usually we just call them gods you know the bad gods and the so molech or baal or um uh, well there's there's some that are like pestilence gods and plague gods and things like that that show up in the old testament that nobody will know who they are. Um, so yeah, so cherubim, seraphim, these are different ranks or different, they have different roles in the Old Testament. The cherubim are guardians of the sanctuary of God. The seraphim are these fiery snake things, which in Isaiah kind of mingle into the cherubim guarding the, the place of God. Um, when we've got malachim, the angels, the messengers who bring information uh, and sometimes do things besides just give messages. But that's what Malachim means or Angelas in Greek. All right. I'm still talking. Yep. No, it's, so here's here's what I want to ask. And may, okay. this is probably one of Josh being too reductive. So then is this idea throughout talking Old Testament here specifically, <clears throat> is it all theodicy? Is it all the biblical authors trying to explain uh, evil or badness? And so here's here's this theodicy that we're we're creating. We're pulling from uh, different known stories and narratives within our our larger culture, and now like we're doing theodicy. We're trying to theologize about this, and now pff, here's here's what we got. Is that fit? I don't know. I think it's at least that. At least that. That's probably a good way to put it. It's probably, maybe it's not just that, 
Right. But that's at the very least, that's what's happening. Yeah. I think they have lots of ideas in their mind of how the gods work. Remember, I mean, these they're intermingling, they're talking with Canaanites and, and, and they have different, um, different groups of gods that they would, that they would worship and they'd hear and they'd syncretistic, they'd move some of these things into their own thinking. And, you know, we have even Psalms that are songs that are sung to Baal that have been changed to Yahweh. We found them in other Ugaritic places. So we know that they're originally sung to others. Even the cadence tells you that it goes with another God, but, but they're taking these stories and using them for themselves. Okay. And that's fine because maybe there is, and this is the bigger question, is there some sort of reality behind all of these stories? And that's, that's where, I mean, that's where the theology gets in, right? That's when we start doing the work of what's really happening. And I guess I'm still, I'm still so, maybe I'm too conservative in this, but I, I think that there's something behind all of this stuff. So like, if you were to ask me, you know, is, was there a flood? You know, I would say, I would say the story isn't about a worldwide flood and it's not about a localized flood. It's about a cosmic flood. It's about a flood that where God starts over because the sons of God have become so bad and because the, the mankind, mankind has become so bad. It's so like a started, decreation narrative, right? It's a decreation narrative, exactly. Cool. So he's created the world by opening, pulling the waters back in both directions, vertically and horizontally, and now he's letting them all come back together. So he's decreating the world. But that doesn't mean that that's a mythical story in, 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 in the sense of fictional story. It does mean it's a mythical story, that it's a story designed to get across something far larger than it is. But I still think in their cultural memory, they remember a flood. Like there was something that happened in their world and they remember these things and stories were put with these floods to explain why they happened. And so with a flood like that, we have, we have more than one Noah story, right? So if you read um, Gilgamesh epic, Atrahasis, uh, Enkidu, these kinds of things, you're going to see Utnapashtim is, on a, is on, a, uh, on a boat. And similar things happen to him that happened to Noah. So, so I, I just want to say, I think there's something behind this. I'm not sure I would be... I'm not sure I would, I would pound the pulpit on that. Like that there's, that there's actual dark forces that are in the world that are trying to mess us up. But that's, that's what I think. Like, I, I think we're, I think we're far too modernistic when we get rid of that supernatural realm. And I know that these are primitive people and they didn't understand things in our scientific ways. And maybe they're just trying to get across the idea of darkness, which we all know about. Like, there's no question that there's darkness in the world, whether it's coming from my brain or it's coming from spiritual forces or it's a combination of both. I, I would probably say it's a combination of both. And I know lots of people have seen things that they can't explain that go beyond, beyond anything that I would think. And, but, but as we move into the New Testament, right, we do see things that, that can go either way. So Jesus is certainly come to conquer the dark forces, right? That's what the cross, I don't wanna say is all about, but 
that's significant part of what's happening on the cross is he's conquering these dark forces once and for all. Death, the death of death. But even as he's walking around on earth, right? He's this warrior God who comes in and is defeating these giants or these, um, these demons. He's constantly kicking them out, sending them into pigs, you know, and they're like, please don't, don't tell, you know, they're all, they're all being tortured by Jesus. That's part of it. And Jesus himself, we talked about this already, the temptation narrative, he's, he seems to be walking around for 40 days with a Satan, with a devil, with an adversary, somebody who is trying to get him, a false prophet who's trying to get him to follow the path of least resistance, to go the path that God doesn't want him to go. So does he have to be a, like a personal person who's walking right next to Jesus for 40 days on a wilderness journey? No, I think, I think there's 40 days because there were 40 days in the wilderness and, you know, from Israel and, and these, these authors in the new Testament are just literary geniuses. And they're like, Oh, you'll know what I do when I say 40 right here, you know, he's walking around and, and they didn't, they didn't bother to listen to God. Well, Jesus is going to win where Israel, the original Israel, failed. And so it may have, it may just be a symbol for Jesus' whole life, right? That for, for his whole life, he was just like constantly tempted to take the reins and to bring the kingdom now and the way he wanted it to be instead of following in the path of sacrifice, which is why when Peter, right? Peter says, we'll fight for you. Right? What does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because that's kind of like, that's not a great thing to hear the Messiah say to you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure that Satan, an actual being, has come into him as much as he's saying, you're being an adversary right now. You've taken on the form of a dark force keeping me from the goal, which is ultimate sacrifice for everyone, right? Even Judas, I'm not, I'm not sure that it, it says that Satan, uh, Satan, he got, Satan filled him and he went out to do, like, does that mean a possession? Like we think of when we think of exorcisms and, and those movies, those weirdo movies, or does it just mean that this idea of being an adversary to Jesus just overwhelmed him and he got up? I want to say, I want to say yes. I, I don't know that we have to have an either or to that. Like, I, th I think Satan, I think the dark force uh, that stands against God, this false prophet is always on us, isn't he? Like, we know that God has said, here is what you should believe. Here's how you should be thinking. And yet we're constantly, our mind is constantly going a different direction. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is always right in the middle of the garden, isn't it? We're always being tempted by that thing. Like, it's great that we just passed by it. Like, okay, I did, I made it, but you're going to pass by the same stinking temptation tomorrow. That tree's still there. And Satan's still going to be there. The false prophet's going to be saying, Hey, I think you need this. Like, this is a constant battle for our whole life. So yeah, I think that's what God's trying to get rid of. This is why he's come to conquer those things. And you know, we could say he's, he's begun that with Jesus, or you might say he's already finalized it with Jesus, but it's not yet done. There's still wrap up, right? There's still darkness in our own hearts that needs to be wiped out. And yeah, we could get into Satan being thrown into the pit and 
Jude and Peter both talk about Genesis 6, 1 through 4, you know, that being locked in Tartarus in this place under the earth, the Sheol. But then we got to talk about the God Sha'al and stuff like that. So I don't know. That's that sounds deep. Yeah, it, I mean, it gets really crazy really fast, right? Like the <clears throat> the development into the New Testament, like there's this more developed concept and idea of like angels and demons. And it really, it really kind of ramps up. And it, I mean, it can kind of catch some readers off guard, right? Because it, there's like these ideas and out of nowhere, like you, you know, you what is end in Micah. And then you go to start, you know, the beginning of the New Testament with Matthew. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute what are the like demons like what is that like what why weren't they in the first you know two-thirds of this book (laughs) and like this other stuff so like really it starts to develop which i know i think it's interesting though because like when i'm i'm listening to you talk about it because like so i'm going to do a little bit of theologizing all right like for my for myself like i would i would agree with you that like we that like that temptation so to speak is always there right um, I, I don't hold to some kind of view that like people are just inherently sinful and that's the core of who people are. Like, I don't buy into that kind of like total depravity type mindset. Um, but I do think that it, in my opinion, how I would look at it is like every single human being has the propensity for tremendous good, but also has the, pre- the propensity for tremendous evil. And so that, that temptation is always there. And so when those kind of temptations happen in life or like you see, like you flip on the news and, and see like some really terrible evil stuff happening. Like, I don't think it's wrong to like, there's an urge to want to name that as something. And it's something that is, is larger and transcendent than just, one little thing right and so some people then would call that satan like Mm -hmm. satan is causing all of this bad stuff and for me it's like i don't like i if you if you're using satan to mean like this like some force of evil that like has power in the sense that like people buy into it and then things happen or like when you get like empire, for example, right. This is a theme throughout scripture, like empire being criticized and like, you know, a, a power abusing people to, that's evil. Right. And like, once you get it like a corporation or like an entity that is large enough, an empire that is large enough, there's like this collective, like struggle for power, like something that starts to happen like a force of evil starts to, to form there. And I think Paul talks about this, right? The, the principalities and, and powers yeah, of darkness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like that. I think he's naming something real, but I don't think for me, at least I'm not picturing like, you know, little red guys flying around possessing people. I think for me, it's like Paul's naming a real phenomenon, like phenomena, phenomenologically, he's naming something that's there but it's not it's not like an ontological claim if that makes sense yeah that makes Um, a lot of sense and that's kind of where for me like that works i don't know though like because maybe the authors of scripture maybe i'm wrong like the authors of scripture like nope because so uh sorry i'm rambling 
But here's no. an, here's another example. You and I had a conversation. It was a text conversation. I was kind of frustrated because I don't want to name this author because I actually like this author. And I think that's part of why I was so angry. <laughs> but I tried to read their most recent book. And their book starts off with this whole bit about Satan. And their whole thing is like, Jesus believed in an anthropomorphic personalized Satan. And so we have to as well. And that was the foundation for their book. And so for me, I was like, you lost me. I don't want to read your book anymore because I think that's not right. So like, I think that's going too far. Like, I don't, I don't think there's a little, like a, a creature, a, a being that is, that is going around doing bad stuff. And that has like a little gang of demons or something. Right. right. Um, and then, uh, sorry, I'll do one more, one more bit of theologizing here, and then I'll let you respond to the 900 things I just said. Right. Uh, good I'll luck with that, by the way. Good luck. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I worked at uh, the church I worked at in Florida, the first one that I had that shitty experience with, um, we had to read this book and it was like, I forget who it was written by, but some like radio televangelist kind of guy. And it was all about Satan. And like, it was very, very much an anthropomorphic being that like sits at his desk and like throws darts at you and like does evil shit. Um, and I pressed them on it. And I was like, I, I'm not really vibing with this book. Like, it seems like you're setting up this character who is somehow e like opposite and equal to God. Like the, the idea that I think some people have in their mind that like, oh, sa Satan is tempting me or Satan made me do it. I think that gives Satan, whatever this force is, too much credit. Like, to say that Satan is tempting me is like, okay, so you think you're so special that this being who is not God, not omnipresent, not all, it's not, you know, he's not everywhere like God is. He doesn't know everything like God does, um, is like personally tempting you right now when there's seven point however many billion other people in the world. <laughs> maybe but i don't know like that it seems too much and i think the temptation is we either give satan too much power and make satan into this really big thing that satan is not or we diminish satan completely and say it's all rubbish none of it is true and i i don't want to go there but i don't want to also embrace this like you know opposite being of god either i don't think that i don't know yeah is there a middle ground <laughs> yeah i mean as you were saying all this stuff of course i'm thinking about lewis's quote about you know the equal and opposite reactions to this to the dark forces and stuff which i'm sure everybody knows i don't need to say it again but um yeah so your countdown from your 900 things that you uh, 901 since you added that last one there the different things yeah i'm with you i I agree. Like, I don't think if we say that Satan is tempting us, that we should be thinking about uh, this actual being that is standing next to us, especially one named Satan. That's that's foreign to the Bible. Um, but it, the concept of Satan as an overarching enemy who is who has lots of other people that are like him, not people, but minions, or however you understand demons right, that are in his employ or 
like him in some sense, forces of darkness. Because, you know, if I say Satan tempts me, I'm not really thinking about particular Satan who's tempting me. I just mean I'm being tempted by, by Satan or by his forces. And, and Satan does seem to do, like I said, he does, he enters Judas, right? That's something that's going on there. He fills Ananias's heart to lie. Uh, remember Ananias and Sapphira, um, people are turned from the power of God to the power of Satan, Th those kinds of things. Uh, he binds a woman for like, I can't remember how many years, like 18 years, right? She has an issue of blood. Those kinds of things give Satan some sort of, again, the literature anthropomorphizes him in those, in those areas. And Paul does a lot of the same things, right? Um, right. So could they be like personal, like personifications of evil? Because all of those things are bad things, right? Like no, nobody thinks it's good. Well, uh, yeah, in general, most people that aren't psychopaths or sociopaths don't think it's good just to go kill people or like do these things. So we can say like, oh, I have this temptation and then Satan is the one doing that. But could that just be like a, a personification naming a real experience? I actually feel like, you know, all of us have these like bad things. Like we think about like, oh, you know, today I'm tempted, you know, my wife just left home and, you know, whatever. So now I'm going to get on my laptop and look up porn. Right. That's a real temptation that exists. Yep. So to, and, and to name that and say, okay, that's a, a temptation of Satan. That's like a helpful, like even like pedagogical tool is not quite what I'm looking for, but even like that, like it's, it's naming something real, but it's, it's personifying it. I don't, I don't know. No, I, I think that that's, I think that's legit. And that's a, uh, that's a serious scholarly way of thinking about this. So that, that these are um, just pieces of our, our psychology. There's parts of our minds and our minds are tainted, maybe not uh, totally depraved, as you say, but certainly we are tempted when wife leaves to look at our porn, as you said. So that is a force of darkness in us, around us, whether it's an actual being that flies through the, you know, that does all those things, you know, we don't even have any, any stories about angels flying. So um, there's no wings on angels. Cherubim and seraphim have wings, but not angels. Anyway, um, some of them do fly, I think, or at least maybe do. Anyway, that's not really the point. Um, I think you're right. I think that, I think it is, it would be okay for us to not have a personal Satan. I don't think that keeps us from being Christians to have that kind of understanding. I think the, the text still stands that Matthew or Luke will be telling the story so that we'll understand these dark forces, but they will personify. They'll, they'll, give, they'll give Satan a body because it makes more sense. Even Jesus himself says, I saw Satan falling like lightning, right? Now, I don't know if he's like looking up into the sky and he sees this cosmic being falling. Yeah. No, you know, the whole earth shakes or something. I, I don't think that's the idea. I think the point is what he's trying to make, because it's not, by the way, that's not something that he's saying. I saw Satan millions of years ago fall from heaven when he became prideful like Lucifer. That's not the his point there. The point is that this strong man or this force of darkness has to be bound before you can loot his, his house, 
And that fact, that's the story that Jesus tells you. If you want to, if you want to loot the house, and that's what Jesus is there to do, is to loot the strong man's house. He's to go in and take, get rid of this blackness, these dark forces. So he's saying, I see Satan falling, not literally, but like I'm here to conquer darkness. I'm here to get rid of all of these things. So I think that would, that would be a, I think a very obvious way to support what you're saying because I don't think he's actually seeing. Satan falling, flailing down, you know, off the high dive into the water or whatever. That's not what's going on. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. And I, yeah. I think Paul, a lot of Paul's things would say the same thing. Okay. Like a lot of dark forces. We talked about that earlier. I think uh, principalities and powers and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I know that it says that he's going to be crushed under the church's feet Satan will be, uh, I think that's in Romans. Yeah, Romans 6. There's a song about it I used to sing in Vacation Bible School. Romans 16, 19. Although it's really, it's like not until like 20 or 21 that it says it. Yeah. The song is catchy enough, right? So it's like Romans 16, 19 says, and then it go, says that a couple of times. It says, be excellent for what is good, be innocent of evil. And it's like the, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And then everybody would jump and like go, you know boom on the ground and go huh and yeah. like that was like that's a song you can google it if you don't believe me roman 1619 I, I think i think the details of your song right there convinced me that you're telling the truth otherwise it's a real song yeah i wouldn't have written ridiculous. it <laughs> but yeah it's yeah. Uh, fun but paul's constant i mean i think every time he uses satan you can you can go in either direction with that right an incestuous man is handed over to Satan in first Corinthians, right? Like he's not like actually being handed over to a literal Satan. He's yeah. You're going into the darkness. Um, you're told to have sex with your wife so that Satan can't tempt you. Like I, oh, so that's that, that pornography thing. You should that tell might you. Be, yeah. That might be my new favorite verse. This is the greatest, like, greatest <laughs> come on line you can possibly do. Hey baby. Yeah. God, you know, God said, I, he's, you know, anyway. Um, yeah, and he's called an angel of light. He's, the thorn in the flesh is from Satan, you know, is, uh, has to do with that. Um, he's thwarting travel plans. I mean, he's not like flying around, stopping all of these things that are happening. Paul talks about all that kind of stuff. You're handed, the blasphemers are handed over to Satan again. They're not handcuffed and handed over to them. Um, and some people wander away from Satan to the, beauty of the light. Again, we're not. So I don't think we're ever supposed to think of him. Even if he is an actual person, has a personality like that, when he's being referred to, it's a big picture understanding of him as the king of darkness. But that world comes in the New Testament. That's when like, there's this whole movement in the Old Testament where these sons of God become or these these fallen or these runaway sons of God, divine counsel, have become, have started to solidify in theology to become these demons and hordes of darkness in the New Testament in a, in a different way. So, yeah. And then, I mean, I don't know if we want to do Revelation, but I know you've got to. Well, I was, I was going to ask, like, do you know, do you know if there's any connection? Because, like, in my mind, just thinking about this conversation is there any connection between the idea of like the antichrist the antichrist and 
the Satan. Like, because they seem like they, at least in my mind, they seem related because if the Satan is, is somebody who opposes God and like does things that are anti-Christ, right? <laughs> Anti- yeah. Anti-ethical to the, to, to what Jesus or the, the Christ stands for. Like, are they, could the Antichrist be a riff on like the Satan idea? Are they completely separate? Like, do you, do you know, I know you're an OT scholar, but. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that I'm botching this and all of your people will will scream at me. But so in Revelation, I think the dragon, the serpent, um, those characters are the Satan. They're they're called serpent, devil, dragon. That's the Satan character. And he gives power, I think, if oh my goodness, it's been a long time, to the beasts, right? There's two beasts. And then we get into the whole 666 and all that stuff. But one of the beasts is Antichrist, as I understand. Now, again, I don't think we're supposed to think of them as if, you know, there's one person is the Antichrist. The Antichrist in John is this whole idea of people who are false prophets, people who are against God and setting themselves up as rulers. So it's not like Barack Obama or Joe yeah, Biden no. or Donald Trump. No, no, it's no, not no. whoever the current U.S. president is that you don't like is not right. the Antichrist or the Russian president or the or Russian president, president <laughs> or whatever the bad guy is in our life right now is not the Antichrist. Got it. <laughs> so or they could be Antichrists sometimes, but then so are people that I hang out with sometimes. Right. That is there. Hey, don't I, I thought you would not share that about me. I wasn't talking air. about. OK, I was. <laughs> yeah, because if you're calling me to do something that goes against what God has called me to do, then you are in some sense an antichrist. You are going against my reflecting God's glory the way I'm supposed to imaging him following my vocation. Anytime that you say, take the fruit, go ahead. It's OK then you're becoming an antichrist and you're setting yourself up in the place of God. That's the problem. That's always been the problem is that you're a false prophet and I need to, what they should have done to the snake in the garden, chopped his head off. So anytime you're done, it's, I've got, got my sword out and I'm ready to go with that. So yeah. And they remember um, the dragon, the deceiver, the serpent, they get, they get thrown down to the earth um, in revelation. They get tied up for a thousand years in the abyss and then they're released and and all that stuff and i think you've had on uh dr rob dalrymple before and he can he can explain that stuff in great detail um and beautifully poetically in ways that i can't i've heard him speak he's awesome so yeah so there you go i think we went through the entire bible i'm sure i missed a bunch of passages but <laughs> yeah no all revelation yeah it's it's all good i think one thing that we that you did really well is is helped show i think it's an important distinction and this is actually a distinction i learned specifically from you and then like it just keeps you know showing and manifesting itself and and having the distinction is helpful there's a distinction between like biblical scholarship and theology and like what the bible and the literature is doing and then how people theologize about it because i think for some of the listeners and th this is not a slight at you. This is just a, a, like a thing. Some of the listeners might be like bummed, like, oh, well, I have all these theological questions. Right. But like I knew talking to you that I was going to try to shelf all of my theological questions so we could say within the text what's happening. You know, what is the literature doing? 
And I think that's that's a helpful distinction because then like one of the people on Instagram asked the question, like, do demons know my thoughts? Like, do demons and Satan and Satan know my thoughts? Are they able to know those things? And I think if I were to ask you that, um, you would probably say something like, that's a really nice theology question, but I'm not sure that the, the literature, the text is going to answer that. I don't know. <laughs> right. And that's, that's always the problem is we want to know more than the text is willing to give us. It's dealing with a different issue. So it's not, nobody's asking that question. Not that nobody was asking that question, but that's not what the authors are trying to answer for you. So for me to tell whether demons know your thoughts, I mean, that unless they're somehow a whole lot more powerful than it seems like I've, they have credit for in the New Testament, I would say, no, they don't know your thoughts, but I don't know. Like that's a, that's a whole world that is out there and I don't, I don't want to denigrate theologizing either. That's what we need to be doing, right? You have to take this information and bring it down to the actual questions that we have. But sometimes those questions, I don't know. I feel like sometimes the mystery is probably okay. And we can just let some of these questions go if we can get the bigger picture of what the authors are trying to do. So the question of whether demons have are able to hear your your thoughts or not the conversation that you and i just had about them not being necessarily personal beings at all would answer that question so they're they're not hearing your thoughts they're at, at best they're spirits so even having ears and things like that is you know everything is is metaphor we're, we're trying to understand things and and bring them down to our level but we, they're not hearing things, you know, everything's accommodated to us. So I, I don't know the answer to that. And I, I would love to ask that question too, to all these theologians or to these exorcists who are casting out demons all the time. Like, do you, can you help me understand some of these things? John Wimber, he's done a lot of great work on, on that kind of stuff, but I don't know where they get their answers from. It doesn't seem to me it's from the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I feel like they're just speculating and I don't, that's dangerous for me to just speculate. I mean, I can play with people if we want, but it's just, I don't know. My, my opinion is no better than some second grader who is musings about uh, paranormal. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Great question. Whoever asked that question. I love it. I, but I'm hoping you can answer it for me. Yeah, I, man. Um, and though, I mean, those kind of questions get dicey too, because like even I would answer it differently now than I would have, you know, earlier on in my life. Like I, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but like I, and I don't actually know if I ever shared this with you, Jace, but like, I feel like I had some, at the time, what I considered demonic experiences when I was in college. Um, looking back, I had tremendous anxiety. <laughs> and a few other things that like that's really what was going on um and then perhaps because of my you know christian context and some of the you know people i interacted with at the time i personified my own anxiety in the form of demons or something like that maybe you know that's a psychological example you know answer for it yeah. and i think it'd be fun to ask Dan too right Dan Cook uh over at you have permission who he he's studying his 
PsyD right now or to, to earn his PsyD right now, I'm sure he would give some kind of psychological explanation for demons and such. Like I, and I, I think the truth is, I don't, I don't know, but what one thing that drives me crazy, like absolutely drives me crazy. And I think it keeps me humble. Maybe hopefully is in the movie, the usual suspects. Have you seen that? It's oh, a classic. Man. A really long time ago. I can't remember much about it. Yeah. Okay, but Kevin Spacey's character in that movie has a line and he says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And like that, you can chalk it up to like a circular argument and all that kind of stuff, because you could say that about unicorns, too. Right. The greatest trick unicorns ever pulled was convincing the world they didn't exist. Um, But that that still bothers me because it's like okay, maybe I'm wrong about all of this. And there really is this, you know, maybe these people are, are right about this like over personified anthropomorphic being called Satan. And like, I'm just caught in Satan's grasp. And that's why I don't believe or something like that. You know, there's always that fear. And I think personally, I think it's irrational. I think it stems, a lot of the fear stems just more from my upbringing and things that were drilled into me. Um, and I think based off the God that I experience and things like that, I think it's, you know, silly to, to be afraid of that, but I understand it. Um, but I also think it keeps me humble, right? Because I don't want to completely throw out the whole idea. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, no such thing as Satan, no such thing as demons. I just want to heavily nuance what I mean by Satan and demons. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I think that's good. I, I mean, you mentioned the psychology of it. I remember um, when I was in seminary, we had to do uh, rounds with psychology and clinics for counseling degrees and stuff like that. And I remember asking one of the one of the psych teachers there about demon possession. And I remember her just looking at me like I was insane. Like, and it was the first time, maybe, I mean, I was in my young 20s. One of the first times that I was just like, my worldview is ridiculous or at least it's seen that way as because she would have just said, you know, those things that were called demon possession were just a psyche prop. Like it's just psychological problems that you had this uh, split personalities or whatever. I don't, I don't know all about all that psychology and stuff. Again, you could ask Dan Koch about that. He knows a whole lot more. I love listening to what he has to say on that. Um, but just because I think we can say that a lot is psychologically based. And that's generally what I would assume if somebody comes to me and says, I think this person's demon possessed. My immediate assumption is there's something wrong mentally, right? But that, that's still a form of darkness. There's still something that's broken, something that is pulling them away in some, in some sense. I just, I just don't want to, I want to say that's not necessarily demonic anything that doesn't take away the fact that there might still be demonic things. Like the fact that you had an anxiety attack or whatever and attributed it to Satan at that time doesn't mean that Satan doesn't do that. That just means in your particular case, maybe he didn't, I don't know, but I I don't know. I just have, I have so many, having been a missionary overseas, so many friends with stories of things that they've seen and done and, yeah, I can probably discount quite a lot of them, but 
I, I don't, there's just so very many stories of, of supernatural things. I, I don't, I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to lessen that, especially as a pastor, maybe a pastoral word as we get ready to close up in here. Um, I, I, don't, I don't ever want to do anything to denigrate God's word, first of all. And I want to, I'm trying to take it as seriously as I can in what it's trying to accomplish. And I, I don't want to lessen the, the power of darkness by saying it's not personal or even by suggesting it's possible that it's not a personal thing. That doesn't make it less. It, it might make it more. I don't, I don't know. The, the, darkness is real. It's real for that, you know, that woman who's just been divorced and is left just crying alone in her room it's real for every depressed person who's, I mean, I don't even know the amount of people that are on um, anxiety medicine of some kind. It, it's real. I mean, I've, I've used this stuff myself um, in the past. There, there's so many things are out there. The murders that we see every day, just the amount of violence and the wars and uh, good grief. Darkness is very real. Satan is very real. I can say that without a doubt, Satan is very real. And I can say without a doubt, that's what Jesus came to conquer, right? Owen's great thing, the death of death. And the idea of death being the ultimate master, the, this, well, we don't want to go back into that, but a chthonic deity uh, in the Hebrew Bible is like Yom or Mot or Sha'al, these death or grave or sea gods are death gods. And, and he, he's come to defeat all of those. It's why Revelation says there'll be no more yam, right? There'll be no more sea. That's the beauty, I think, of this narrative and how it's all been tied together, again, by literary geniuses, but also, I think, by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. He's done something in Scripture that brings it all together. We call it inspired it. And this story, this story has an end to the darkness. So if there's people out there who are just trying to figure out whether demons are speaking to them or their house is haunted, I have someone at my church who thinks that their house is haunted by demons. Um, I'm not going to just dismiss that. I want to say this is what Jesus speaks into. He speaks into this place of darkness. And I'm not going to confirm whether it's demons either. I'm just going to say, let's, I, I can go to your house. And I can pronounce a blessing on the house. I don't mind doing that. I don't think I'm some weird Catholic exorcist guy going in there. I'm simply saying, God, there's, there's something wrong here. There's darkness here. For this woman who lives in this house, she's overwhelmed. And I'm praying for her. I'm praying for a ridding of the darkness, whatever that looks like. And I think God comes through on those things. So... Yeah. No. Darkness, God comes through. Yeah. I, I dig it. And I think that that resonates with me heavily. I mean, that's the 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 eschatological hope uh, presented within the pages of scripture that it, the darkness, right, will be no more. And yeah. uh, all that, you know, every tear will be wiped away. Things like that. The the I mean, it's the restoration of of the Garden of Eden, but now it's like a city. Right. Um, yeah. All like I, I really hope those things are true. <laughs> <laughs> and i think uh i they hope are true they right. are true. come there on John. yeah and that's but that's where i hang my hope and uh that's where i hang my hope in in jesus as well 
I, I want to believe deeply that that's Jesus came in and did those things. And um, I think in a, in a very real sense, I, I believe that Jesus did do those things and um, that the hope is that one day it'll be fully, fully realized, right? It's the already not yet kind of, yep. kind of vibe going on. Um, yeah. I don't know. I could, I could riff on, on the concept all night, I feel like, but perhaps we should, uh, we should shut it down. <laughs> I still haven't eaten dinner yet. And it's uh, <laughs> nine o'clock for me. And I'm sure my wife will appreciate if I go downstairs and eat dinner yeah. and such. It's a little earlier for me here, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to tell you how long it's been since I ate. So yeah. Lucky man over there in California. Well, it's beautiful not, weather. there. Oh, that's cold. what you mean. The weather. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The weather, not the food thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It is good. The weather is much better than it is there. Let's just say that. Yeah. It still feels cold. Right on. Sweet. Well, Jace, thank you for uh, agreeing to come on and and hang out and talk about this. We'll have to do some more fun conversations um, in the future for sure. And uh, friends, also too, like Jace does this cool thing called Tuesday School. Um, If you are interested in taking deep dives into uh the bible and i mean basically it's like a free seminary class on the bible how it works and things like that it's a lot of fun um you can find that on facebook uh jace i'm giving people permission to at least look for you on facebook is that appropriate yeah yep jace broadhurst or i mean that's you'll find me but tuesday school is the best place to find yeah look up tuesday school on facebook yep cool okay i'll link that in the the show notes then as well that way people can just click on that and, and join tuesday school um, you got any more pluggables that you would like <laughs> like to plug? <laughs> no, I think I think that's pretty good right now. Yeah, sweet. All right, good deal, man. Well, thank you, listeners. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, as always, uh, go in peace, guys. <laughs>